Okay, we are reading from Joshua 10, um, from 1 to 28. Now, Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard that Joshua had taken Ai um, to total... Sorry. Now, Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard that Joshua had taken Ai and totally destroyed it, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and that the people of Gibeon had made a treaty of peace with Israel and were living near them. He and his people were very much alarmed at this because Gibeon was an important city. Like one of the royal cities, it was larger than Ai, and all its men were good fighters. So Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, appealed to Hoham, king of Hebron, Piram, king of Jamuth, Japhia, king of Lashish, and Debir, king of Eglon. Come up and help me attack Gibeon, he said, because it has made peace with Joshua and the Israelites. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the kings of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmuth, Lashish, and Eglon, joined forces. They moved up with all their troops and took up positions against Gibeon and attacked it. The Gibeonites then sent word to Joshua in the camp of Gilgal, do not abandon your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us. Help us because all of the Amorite kings from the hill country have joined forces against us. So Joshua marched up from Gilgal with his entire army, including all the best fighting men the Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid of them. I have given them into your hand. Not one of them will be able to withstand you. After an all night march from Gilgal, Joshua took them, up, took them by surprise. The Lord threw them into confusion before Israel, who defeated them in a great victory at Gibeon. Israel pursued them along the road, going up to Beth Horon and cut them down all the way to Ezekiah and Mechadah. As they fled before Israel on the road down from Beth Horon to Azekar, the Lord hurled large hailstones down on them from the sky, and more of them died from the hailstones than were killed by the swords of the Israelites. On the day the Lord gave the Amorites over to Israel, Joshua said to the Lord in the presence of Israel, O sun, stand still over Gibeon, O moon, over the valley of Ajalon. So the sun stood still and the moon stopped till the nation avenged itself on its enemies. As it was written in the book of Jashar, the sun stopped in the middle of the sky and delayed going down about a full day. There has never been a day like it before or since, a day when the Lord listened to a man. Surely the Lord was fighting for Israel. <coughs> Excuse me. Then Joshua returned with all Israel to the camp at Gilgal. Now the five kings had fled and hidden in the cave of Megadah. When Joshua was told that the five kings had been found hiding in the cave of Megadah, he said, roll large rocks up to the mouth of the cave and post some men there to guard it. But don't stop. Pursue your enemies, attack them from the rear, and don't let them reach their cities, for the Lord your God has given them into your hand. So Joshua and the Israelites destroyed them completely, almost to a man. <clears throat> but the few who were left reached their fortified cities. The whole army then returned safely to Joshua in the camp at Makedah, 
and no one uttered a word against the Israelites. Joshua said, open the mouth of the cave and bring those five kings out to me. So they brought the five kings out of the cave, the kings of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmuth, Lashish and Eglon. When they had brought these kings to Joshua, he summoned all the men of Israel and said to the army commanders who had come with him, come here and put your feet on the necks of these kings. So they came forward and placed their feet on their necks. Joshua said to them, do not be afraid, do not be discouraged, be strong and courageous. This is what the Lord will do to all the enemies you are going to fight. Then Joshua struck and killed the, king, killed the kings and hung them on five trees and they were left hanging on the trees until evening. At sunset, Joshua gave the order and they took them down from the trees and they threw them into the cave where they had been hiding. At the mouth of the cave, they placed large rocks which are there to this day. That day, Joshua took Megadar. He put the city and its kings to the sword and totally destroyed everyone in it. He left no survivors and he did to the king of Megadar and he did to the king of Megadar as he had done to the king of Jericho. Amen. Okay, well, let's pray. <clears throat> uh, gracious Father, thank you so much for your word, and we uh, pray now that you'd, by your spirit, be teaching us new and fresh things and reminding us of those things which we uh, know and which are central to our relationship with yourself. Pray that... Um, you would help us now to uh, understand more of your plan and your purpose and your uh, desires for us that we might be people who live faithfully um, in your service. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> there was an older man who attended this church for a long time and he'd been going to churches, I guess, most of his life. He was very happy to read and to study uh, the New Testament, but really struggled to accept the Old Testament. Uh, you see, he had been to war uh, in the uh, period between 1939 and 1945. He served in the Navy in Europe, and he had witnessed um, boats being blown up, body parts floating in the water, men being uh, maimed, uh, limbs torn off, and uh, men being killed. And his revulsion to warfare stayed with him, uh, I think, until the day he died. He had very real trouble ex accepting those parts of the Old Testament where God is involved in warfare. Uh, parts of the Old Testament, such as what we've just read uh, from uh, Joshua, the uh, conquest of the land of Canaan by Israel under Joshua. And so it raises the issue of how should we understand violence in the Old Testament? How should we understand violence when uh, it is said to us that it's been instigated by God, that God has brought about uh, victories at the expense of loss of life, uh, for Israel's enemies. Um, how does that square up with our notions of, of what God should be like? 
And how does it square up with the idea that Jesus is actually referred to as being the prince, not of war, but the prince of, of peace? Now, this is an issue in much of the Old Testament, not just when Israel is victorious, but also when Israel is not victorious, when uh, God allows Israel to be defeated. When we open up our Bibles at uh, Joshua chapter 10, we see that the, the context here is not one of Israel attacking or being attacked by another nation, but uh, rather in verses 1 through to 8, uh, there is a war. There is a war that's happening because uh, it's happening in the land of Canaan, but there are some Amorite kings, five Amorite kings, who have attacked the Hivite city of Gibeon. Uh, although Israel's involved because it is the presence of Israel in Canaan which has actually sparked this war between various Canaanites, Amorites and Hivites living in Canaan. Now, when we think of Jerusalem, and it was interesting to pray for Jerusalem a few minutes earlier, um, when we think of Jerusalem, we always think of Jerusalem as being the focal point of Israel, don't we? Like the capital city of Israel, the focal point of Israel's uh, uh, existence and worship uh, and so on. But it wasn't always that kind of city because when Joshua brought uh, when God, uh, through Joshua, brought Israel into Canaan, uh, the city of Jerusalem already existed. And I've printed a map for you on your service sheets there on the outline so you can see a little bit of the geography of what we're talking about today because uh, whilst we might be a little bit more familiar with post-Israelite settlement of Canaan, we're not so familiar with the pre-Israelite settlement of Canaan, and I think you'll find that map to be helpful. And we can see there that there is a city already, it's called Jerusalem, uh, and uh, it's actually a, a, um, a, it's an Amorite city. Uh, it's a, a, an Amorite city which is ruled by uh, a king called Adonai Zedek, who is now a very worried king. He's a very worried king because... He knows full well what has been happening in the cities to the north of Jerusalem. Jericho, and you can see it there on the map, Jericho has fallen to Israel. Ai, to the west, with the assistance of Bethel, has fallen to Israel. And as we saw a couple of weeks ago, the city of Gibeon, and you see it there on the map, and there are four other cities, smaller cities around Gibeon that are not on the map there, but they're Gibeonite cities. They're in a, uh, in a, um, uh, there's a, a collection of them. Uh, he's, he knows that the, uh, uh, that the city of Gibeon, with its uh, uh, three rather associated cities, has conned Israel into signing a peace treaty with them. Now, these Gibeonite cities were actually quite strategic, uh, commercially strategic, for a number of reasons. One of the reasons being that uh, they were along the, the road route, the transport access between Jerusalem and the Mediterranean coast. So commercially very important. 
and there were other roads that, um, that fanned out from, from Gibeon into the north, uh, providing links between Jerusalem and uh, cities further north. And so combined with the, first of all, the defeat of Jericho, and then the, the defeat of the city of Ai, uh, Israel now controlled a wall of cities uh, to the north of Jerusalem and the trade route to the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, the king of Jerusalem had good reason to be worried about the future of his city. But even worse, in verse 2, if you have a look at verse 2, what does it say about Gibeon's army? It tells us that they were all good fighters. All the men of Gibeon were good fighters. And that's scary for the Jerusalem king for a couple of reasons. First of all, as tough as the Gibeonite soldiers were, even they did not dare to fight against Israel. They, got a, they conned them into a peace treaty. That's the first reason he's got to be concerned. The second scary thing for him is that if he is going to gain control of the city of Gibeon and its satellite cities, which he would like to do because he'd like to have a free trade access, then Gibeon is going to be up for the fight because they are all good fighters. So in verses 3 through to 5, uh, he forms a coalition. Four other Amorite kings join with him in order to attack Gibeon, and these are all kings from cities to the south of Jerusalem, uh, in you know, what we might call southern Canaan. Now have a look in verse 5. Let me read it to you. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the kings of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmuth, which I don't think's on the map. We may not actually know where Jarmuth is. Lachish and Eglon joined forces. They moved up with all their troops and took up positions against Gibeon and attacked it. Now, uh, what do you, I'd call that overwhelming force, wouldn't you? Uh, these are five armies from five cities attacking uh, the Gibeonites. So the Gibeonites were now in very serious trouble, except for one thing, and that is their peace treaty with Israel. So in verse 6, they send out an SOS uh, to Joshua, pleading for help. Now, in the ancient world, peace treaties were uh, often uh, treaties between uh, nations that were uh, somewhat different in terms of their power. They're often a treaty between a, a powerful nation and a less powerful nation. And the terms of the treaty would be that uh, we, the powerful nation, will protect you and care for you when we won't uh, decimate you uh, if you serve us. And the treaty would say, we, the lesser nation, will serve you on condition you don't decimate us and that you'll come and rescue us and protect us. Uh, in some sense, it's that formula, which is the same sort of covenant that God has with his people, that uh, God, the, uh, the greater party, is in relationship with his people, the lesser party, promising to protect uh, the lesser party on condition of serving 
the greater party. And so it seems that it's one of these kind of treaties that, uh, uh, that uh, the Gibeonites have with, with, uh, with Joshua. And so Joshua has every reason to uh, respond positively to this plea for help. But there is another reason why Joshua should agree to help the Gibeonites, and that is the promise of God. Take a look at verse 8. In verse 8, the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them. I, I have given them into your hand. Not one of them will be able to withstand you. So there's a clear promise from God. This is the green light from God to go ahead and to enter into this fray. Now, I, I don't know about you, I find it hard to wrap my head around all these details because uh, we, we are talking about peoples and towns and cities that are very, very unfamiliar to us. We're talking thousands of years ago in pre-Israel Canaan. But it's important that we get a basic understanding of these things because it helps us to understand what happens next in the text. Because the fight is now on. The fight is now on. And in verses 9 through to 15, the Amorites are about to see God in action. It starts with uh, Joshua leading uh, his army uh, from their camp at Gilgal through to Gibeon, and he does so in the night time. Now, that seems to me to be a smart move, don't you think? Because what happens if you uh, travel in the night time? Well, it means the enemy just doesn't see you coming. Uh, the king of Jerusalem and his four other allies, they thought that they were fighting against the Gibeonites. And suddenly, early in the morning, out of the early morning mist, emerges the army of Israel. Israel attacks them. We're told that uh, God throws them into confusion and Israel defeats them. Uh, the coalition armies, or what's left of them, they then make a run for it. They flee. And then two things happen which our insurance companies would call acts of God. Uh, in verse 11, we're told that more Amorites were killed by rocks of ice being pelted on their heads from the heavenlies than from Israelites swinging swords. There's a hailstorm which only impacts the fleeing Amorites. And, as if, and it's a pretty bad hailstorm, <laughs> very bad hailstorm. And as if that's not enough, in verses 12 through to 14, we have described for us one of the most astonishing miracles in the whole of the Bible. Um, let me read it to you. Uh, On the day the Lord gave the Amorites over to Israel, Joshua said to the Lord in the presence of Israel, O sun, stand still over Gibeon, O moon, over the valley of Ajalon, so the sun stood still and the moon stopped till the nation avenged itself on its enemies. Um, <clears throat> starting a battle at sunrise um, meant that there was plenty of time for fighting in the day. But Israel was up against five armies. 
That's a lot of men. And so Joshua prayed to God, asking that the sun and the moon would stand still. The reason is given uh, in order to give Israel more time for the battle uh, by making the day longer. Now, we're not talking about daylight saving here. Uh, we're talking about stopping the earth from rotating. Uh, how do you feel about that, by the way? I mean, it's, um, that's a pretty extraordinary miracle. Uh, is it too much for God? Well, is it, doesn't that involve the same authority which is involved in controlling something like a hailstorm, uh, which is involved in stopping a flooding Jordan River and banking up the water? Isn't it the same sort of authority that means that the walls of Jericho are going to come tumbling down uh, for no other reason other than God willed it to happen? It's the same authority, but on a much, much grander scale. That God can control hail means that God has control over the physical world, including the rotation of planets. Do you believe that God did this? Well, the author of Joshua, uh, he may have thought that some people might think that that's requiring some other evidence. And so he cites uh, another historical account uh, in verse 13. He says that this cosmic event is also recorded in the book of Jashar. Now, we could look up the book of Jashar and see what it says, except the book of Jashar no longer exists. It obviously existed in his readers. His original readers were very familiar with it. But this is a book which has long been lost. Uh, but this is not the only reference to the book of Jashar in the Bible because in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 18, uh, it cites um, a whole section from the book of Jashar saying that this comes from the book of Jashar. So there's other evidence for this book in other parts of the Bible. It was an astonishing miracle not just because it happened, but because of how it happened. It was a miracle that happened as a result of prayer. See what the author says. He says in verse 14, There has never been a day like it before or since, a day when the Lord listened to a man. Surely the Lord was fighting for Israel. Friends, I think that this is very important because the God of the universe not only listens to our prayers, but in his power he acts uh, according to his will for our benefit. Uh, the vast majority of time when we pray for, to God for something to happen, God uses uh, natural occurrences to bring about those things which we pray for. We heard earlier on from Evelyn how she had, uh, you know, how uh, God had blessed her through her uh, health issues. And we know that we prayed for Evelyn during that time and God has answered our prayers. And how has he done so? Through medicine, through doctors, through 
he's brought about the uh, appropriate response so that she's happily with us today. However, however, uh, God does sometimes and will, where necessary, uh, work against the, uh, the laws of physics uh, in order to bring about his plan and purpose, like the stopping of the Jordan River, like the crashing down of Jericho's walls, which I'm sure the engineers said were in perfectly fine condition, and like here. And so the question for us is, are you ever tempted to think that your problem is too big for God? And when you are, then just remember what, what it was that uh, Joshua prayed for. There is nothing in all of creation which is outside of the control of God. Because you know what? He's God. He's the creator. He's the sustainer. He is the one in whose hands our world is held. So, <clears throat> verses 9 through to 15 uh, tell us of God's miraculous actions, the hailstorm, the, uh, the, the sun and the moon and so on. And they conclude in verse 15 with Israel now returning to the camp at Gilgal. Uh, and so you can see how far they've had to go back. Now, there is some debate about what happens next in verses 16 through to 39. Uh, the debate is this. Do verses 16 through to, through to 39 describe for us events which happen chronologically after the fighting of verses 9 through to 15? That is... Did Joshua and the army go back to the camp at Gilgal and then go back onto the, uh, uh, on, onto the, the battlefield? Or do they describe the same campaign but in greater detail and from a, a different perspective? And the reason for that is that there are you know, why would Joshua go back to Gilgal in verse 15 when in verse 16 they're out there on the battlefield? Uh, personally, I lean towards the uh, interpretation that, that it's the same campaign but in, in greater detail. But you know what? I'm not going to burn on the stake over that interpretation <laughs> uh, because... The fundamentally important thing here is that it tells us what happened to the five kings and to the cities of Canaan. So let's have a look at that, shall we? In December 2003, US Special Forces in Iraq, uh, they found a, a hole in the ground. And inside the hole, they found someone hiding. As they dragged him out of the hole in the grand, ground, reportedly he said to them, I am Saddam Hussein, President of Iraq, and I want to negotiate. Well, the five kings 
we're going to receive about as much negotiation as Saddam Hussein received because there would be no negotiations between Joshua and the five Amorite kings who were now fugitives. They had uh, split the scene. They'd taken off together. And in verses 16 through to 21, all five of them were found hiding, not in a hole in the ground, but in a cave. Now, Joshua's men, they had some unfinished business to do in terms of some uh, soldiers who they were still pursuing. And so Joshua said to them, uh, this is what I want you to do with the cave that's got the five Amorite kings inside it. Um, go and put a big rock or multiple big rocks across the entrance to that cave. Um, keep them in there. Keep them trapped. So they sealed the cave with rocks. They kept pursuing the, the fleeing armies until in verses 22 to 27 they were now able to deal with the five kings. Have a look at verse 22. Verse 22. Joshua said, Open the mouth of the cave and bring those five kings out to me. So they brought the five kings out of the cave, the kings of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jamuth, Lachish and Eglon. And when they had brought these kings to Joshua, he summoned all the men of Israel and said to the army commanders who had come with him, Come here and put your feet on the necks of these kings. So they came forward and placed their feet on their necks. Now, why do you think they would do that? Was just just bravado? Just letting them know who's, who's in charge here? Um, not, you know, not treating your vanquished enemy with much respect? Do you think it's just that? I think there's more to it. Because all of the men of Israel were gathered around to watch it. And what we have here is something which is very symbolic. This is a very clear symbol, a visual symbol, to the soldiers of Israel of what God would do to all of Israel's enemies. This is to actually encourage them to be, to be courageous in the occupation of the land. And then the five kings were put to death and we're told that they were hung on trees until sunset. Why do you think they were hung on trees after they had died? Something to do with the law of Moses, isn't it? That uh, anyone who is hung from a tree is cursed by God. This is what you do with people who've committed capital offences. And it's a symbol that this person has been cursed by God. It's the same reason why, uh, fast forward to the first century, it's the same reason why the Jewish authorities, who were the enemies of Jesus, did not simply execute him themselves. Because by the time of the first century, the method of execution was stoning, uh, the Jewish method. The Roman method of execution was hanging from a wooden cross. And they wanted Jesus to die a Roman death because they wanted to make the statement to all and sundry that this man, Jesus, far from being someone from God, is someone who is cursed by God. Little did they know 
that indeed he was cursed by God, but for a very different reason. So, what about the cities of southern Canaan? The five armies are now defeated. Their kings are now buried in their cave. And the way is now clear for Israel's conquest of southern Canaan. Uh, Other cities and other kings would become involved. Uh, And we are familiar with the city of Hebron, aren't we? That's one of the cities mentioned. Uh, Why are we familiar with the city of Hebron? Well, because it exists today. It's a Palestinian city. You can go and visit Hebron if you can get over the fence uh, that the uh, Jews of Israel has erected. You can go to Hebron today. But as for Makedar, Libna, Lachish, Eglon and Debur, anyone ever heard of those places except for here? Not likely because they don't exist any longer. And there's a reason for that. Verses 28 through to 39 tell us the story of, it's a litany of, of cities uh, attacked, uh, conquered, death and destruction as Israel's army sweeps through southern Canaan, attacking these cities, killing people, destroying and leaving zero survivors. Zero survivors. How do you feel about that? How comfortable are you with a God who leaves zero survivors? You start to feel my friend who fought in the the war, how he uh, feels about these things, felt about these things. But think about this. In Genesis chapter 15, when... God promised Abraham that to his descendants that he would give all of the land between the Nile River in Egypt through to the Euphrates River in Mesopotamia, which is modern-day Iraq, when all of that land was to be given over to Abraham's descendants that they would be God's people living in God's place under God's rule, what did we expect? Think about these things. First of all, Canaan was not virgin territory. (laughs) The land was occupied. Abraham knew that at the time. God's promise to Abraham was always going to involve warfare. Always. Secondly, uh, it would also involve judgment. In Genesis chapter 15, Abraham's descendants would not possess the land until the sin of the Amorites had reached its full measure. You see, idolatry is not neutral. Um, And Amorite idolatry involved sacrificing children to their gods. Thirdly, God's people are to be holy. It was essential that Amorite sin would not infect Israel. For God's purpose was to create a new people, a holy nation, a kingdom of priests, a people belonging to God, a people not tempted by living amongst idolatry. 
And so in verses 40 to 43, as the chapter concludes, Joshua, we're told, subjugated the whole region, subdued the whole of southern Canaan from Kadesh Barnea, where 40 years earlier, Israel had balked at crossing into the land of Canaan. From Kadesh Barnea, where the spies came back and said, you can't go there because they're big people, they're going to defeat us. Except, of course, for two of those spies. From Kadesh Barnea, where Israel had stumbled because they refused to trust in the Lord God 40 years earlier, now through all of southern Canaan, and the area is described for us in those verses 40 to 43, uh, Israel, under Joshua, under the sovereign hand of God, has subdued the whole region. Now, mind you, at the very last verse of, the, uh, of, of chapter 10, uh, we're told that they all then went, having done that, they all went back to their camp at Gilgal. Now, what does that mean? That means that although they conquered, they did not settle the land at this point in time. And by the time later on when they did actually settle the land, they had some fresh battles to fight because other people had moved in during that period. Friends, God used the attack by five Amorite kings against Gibeon to move his purpose forward. A physical nation in a physical land, but a physical shadow which helps us to understand the greater spiritual reality of God's plan and purpose. The great battle of the universe, the great cosmic uh, miracle, when another king, another king hung on a tree cursed by God and in doing so defeated the one who is truly our greatest enemy and that is Satan by confiscating the power that Satan had over us by taking his sword away as he bore the judgment of our sin upon himself so that Satan cannot accuse us so that Satan has nothing against us so that Satan has got no hold on us so that we will not be with Satan forever. Now, my friend uh, rejected much of the Old Testament. He came to the view that um, there were two gods. There's the God of the Old Testament who is, uh, who is uh, vindictive and violent. Uh, there is the God of the New Testament who is loving and forgiving and that is a false uh, view of God. Ultimately it was because he actually just did not want to believe in a God of judgment because there are others in our church who uh, have been others in our church over the years who have served in the very same war some have served in the very same battlefields those who have served in the medical corps on the battlefield where they've stitched up and sewn up and tried to reduce the pain of people whose limbs have been blown off their bodies. 
men who've seen bodies strewn across battlefields and yet have deeply loved and deeply trusted God in all of his dealings with men because they've understood that the physical battles that we read about in Joshua actually point us to the, the real battle, the great spiritual battle that uh, took place on the cross. And that until Jesus comes again, that we who are now members of his kingdom are still engaged in, in battles. We're engaged in spiritual warfare that Paul talks about in Ephesians 5, passage that's printed for you on your sheets there. We're engaged in battles, but not with a sword. We are engaged in battles as we, uh, in this uh, fallen world, seek to live godly lives, seek to share the news about Jesus, and as we are soldiers, as we are warriors, as we are people who wrestle in prayer, not just praying for things like that the, sand, that the sun would stand still, but praying for even more important miracles than that. Praying that hearts would be melted, that hearts would be changed, that many, many more people would come to find forgiveness, hope and joy in Jesus and to become members of God's eternal kingdom, his heavenly kingdom. And so we should pray about this. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for this narrative from the Old Testament as uh, difficult as it is and gruesome when we look at some of the details. But we understand, Father, that you have a plan and purpose and that you are a God who uh, does not tolerate sin, that you are a God who does judge. You are a God, though, who creates a new people for yourself. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he was hung from a tree that he bore the guilt of our sin. Father, we pray that uh, many, many more people would have their hearts changed by your Holy Spirit, that they too would come to trust in him, to trust in you, and to join up with the kingdom that lasts forever. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.